This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. Hello, hello. Welcome to JavaScript Jabber. I'm your host, AJ O'Neill, and today on the show we have Greg Whitworth. How's it going? We also have Amy Knight. Hello from Nashville. It sounds like we have a new host. And I'm your host, Alvin Alexander O'Neill Jr. Sr. Esquire of the O'Neill Estate III. Oh my God. <laughs> nice. No, not your God, just your host. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so with all that shenanigans out of the way, um, Greg, why don't you give us a little intro about who you are, what you do, and uh, and and then I'll I'll Amy will actually kick us off with the questions because she's got them hot and ready. Yeah, I work on uh, Microsoft Edge HTML, uh, specifically layout uh, and the layout team. Uh, we own pretty much everything from CSS cascade and parsing. Uh, through building up the layout boxes uh, before I pass it on to uh, the render team who owns painting and stuff. So uh, that's kind of where I live. Um, I'm on the CSS working group, uh, involved with the Houdini task force as well. Uh, so that's kind of me in a nutshell. Oh, that's way cool. So what is the Houdini task force? Uh, so uh, everybody that uses uh, JavaScript DOM APIs, uh, it, it's kind of like an overloaded uh, methodology. We allow you to do like get CSS styles and all kinds of things from the DOM. Uh, but it's actually the worst spot for you to get that information from because it, it, a lot of times it requires us to kind of flush the pipeline. Uh, and so the Houdini aspect is basically, hey, we now all kind of have similar engines uh, and similar aspects, so why don't we give them JavaScript hooks at those points rather than via the DOM where it then has to go all the way through. So uh, it's very early stages. Some of it is... Uh, not like even the V1s of like the Paint API, for example. Uh, what it basically is allowing is, I don't know if you've heard of the extensible web manifesto, but it's really trying to buy into that premise that uh, the standards bodies, while we you know all you know have a lot of knowledge, we also aren't on the front lines developing websites all the time. Uh, and so while uh, we, we know a lot about how browsers work and how to implement things, we don't know necessarily the, the best things to standardize. Um, and so this just gives uh, web developers much more performant hooks to be able to go create conic gradients or any number of things. Uh, uh, we basically um, have like the paint API is one that's actually, uh, you know, in a working draft. Uh, the layout API is actually very close to, to being complete as well. Uh, in, in regards to the working draft, uh, there's still a long ways to go. And they also definitely don't offer you this, the same uh, capabilities if you were to come right in C++ in one of the engines. But it's it's a great process, and and along the way, one of the things I'm excited about is how covering all of these things that web developers have always hated, um, that are helpful no matter if you're going to go write those things for uh, new layout types or painting APIs. Uh, for example, like uh, one of the ones I'm excited about that hopefully we'll get to work on the next, you know, year or so is just the parser API. Um, just because we all have parsers in our engines, but hey, if you're a JavaScript developer and you want to like understand uh, the the you know, CSS, you have to go roll your own parser, which makes no sense. And, and the type OM is another one, you know, Hey, I got these styles uh, from this DOM element and it says 25 pixels. Well, now I have to like, you know, to explode that string. So I understand and convert that to an end. So it's 25. So I can do some math on it. The type OM now actually takes all that CSS and builds an object model that actually has types. So you can actually say, you know, I just want you to add these two things together because they're already integers. Um, so it's just wonderful things are coming out of it. Uh, irregardless of the you know extensible web manifesto kind of purpose. So what I've heard a lot of people compare it to just kind of at a very high level is like we have Babel you know for JavaScript and this is going to kind of enable some of the same things that Babel does, uh, but for CSS now at a high level. Um, I actually don't use Babel much, <laughs> so like if I if I recall correctly, Babel basically um, if you end up doing like it allows you to write in like ES6 or ES2017 formats and then it'll transpile it down to lower level, correct? Yes. Yeah. So it, it's it's kind of the, I guess, somewhat, uh, but basically what it allows you to do is let's say, hey, um, uh, th this is actually a really good example with the layout API. Hey, I, I want, 
to be able to write my own Pinterest type layout um, where it's, you know, got that, you know, stacked columns and stuff and everything fits nicely. Uh, th- this will then allow you to go and do that uh, and, and much more performantly than if you were to try to do it now with absolute position on DOM elements uh, and doing all the math yourself and stuff like that. Um, and then you then can just roll that as a library and it can even be used by everybody else in just regular CSS using custom properties. Uh, and then it'll just kind of work everywhere. And then as the standards bodies in the CSS working group, we see this, you know, take off, you know, and it's used everywhere. Very similar to jQuery. Uh, and all of a sudden we can say, okay, well, let's go standardize this. We actually already have an implementation and we can even look at what's most commonly used and standardize those and then go implement them in C++ and heavily optimize those. Awesome. So I want to back up a little bit. And, you know, I invited you on, I, I guess you had, um, I did a, an episode for the shop talk show where I kind of went through um, this talk I've been giving that, you know, the stuff that you've been talking out about and the stuff that I've been talking about parallels a little bit. Um, but for people who are not familiar, can you kind of take us back to basics a little bit? And I, I think even like some, you know, beginner developers probably are not aware that like the JavaScript engine and the rendering engine are separate things. And then also you talked about the CSS OM. Can you talk about what the CSS OM is? So two questions there. <laughs> yeah. So uh, by the way, I love that podcast uh, and I, I love uh, that you took the time to go do that because uh, so many JavaScript uh, developers don't uh, <laughs> take the time to go figure out what CSS is doing. Uh, and understanding the rendering uh, pipeline in general. Um, but to your point, yeah, every browser has a separate JavaScript engine, and it's like its own, got its own pipeline, it's got its own uh, ways of working. Uh, I was about to use uh, Microsoft terminology and be like, imagine it's its own DLL. <laughs> but <laughs> well, it, uh, yeah, like it's even interesting to me that you work on a separate part of the rendering engine. But anyways, we, I, I won't go down that rabbit hole that you finish. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, what what ends up happening is, there's, uh, from a, a high level, basically what ends up happening is there's uh, the pipeline, if we're going to like simplify this, is basically there's networking, then there's uh, parsing in the DOM structure, basically all the content is uh, built up. Then we go through parsing and CSS styles and then we cascade, we build up the layout box tree, then we move that on to painting, and then finally rendering and compositing. Um, and so that's kind of the steps that it goes through. Um, and so the CSSOM is actually built up after parsing. Uh, that's actually when the CSS OM is created. And basically that's what you end up seeing if you do dot style on something and you read something back. That's actually what you're looking at or you do get computed style. That's It's in that same object. And that's that's basically what it is. And that's initially created at parse time. Um, and uh, I forget what your other question was. Uh, so you kind of answered that. So I wanted to make sure that people were clear. They understood, you know, we have the the JavaScript engine and then we have the rendering engine that's responsible for parsing our HTML and CSS. Mm-hmm. So, so that was like point A. And then point B, um, I, at least for me, the first that I had ever heard of the CSS OM or CSS object model was when I started digging into this. You know, I knew about the DOM, mm-hmm. but I didn't know about the CSS object model. Yeah. So, um, so you did answer those two questions. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Perfect. So I guess, you know, a, a follow-up question to that, which is what I was kind of starting to go down this, you know, rabbit hole about. So uh, now that we were, like, talking about just the rendering engine specifically, can you kind of talk through from the browser's perspective, um, at least for Edge, since that's what the team that you're working on, you know, we have layout, paint, and composite and those it sounds like those are three different teams on edge so it it it's it's it gets very fuzzy because <laughs> uh yeah because i mean some things we end up having to pass off to other teams because they handle like for example animations and that's primarily on the compositing side uh solely for the reasons you've you know highlighted in your talk and in your discussion uh on shop talk um but we end up doing all the parsing and and stuff of that nature. Uh, and there are separate teams, and that's kind of very similar across all browsers, uh, where they end up drawing that line is a little bit different. Uh, but most, because it, it takes you very different skill sets to truly, really know layout and truly, really know like painting and rendering and all the optimizations that go into each, because uh, browsers are really complex. So uh, you you rarely have something that's just kind of spanning all of them at a very deep level. You may have somebody that's you know like architectural lead over many, but um, so, yeah. So I have my own thoughts on this, but I'd be curious, you know, about yours. 
because we're on a JavaScript podcast, you know, why is it important for us to understand not just, you know, how the JavaScript engine is working, but how the rendering engine is working if we're, you know, front end developers? I, I that's, a, that's a great question. I, I think it's really important, not necessarily to know it at like a really deep level, but I think it's important to at least understand uh, what the engine is doing, uh, kind of like what I was referring to earlier of that pipeline, just so that you're making the wisest decisions you can. Like you may ultimately end up in that situation where there's no other route but to do custom layout in JavaScript because, hey, your designers and your business stakeholders have uh, defined, hey, this is how it has to look. And unfortunately, we can't accomplish that with CSS Grid right now or some other uh, manner. Um, but it's important to know that so that you're not writing, you know, terrible JavaScript that is actually crippling uh, your user's experience uh, a good a good example of that, and it doesn't even have to do with layout, is if you were, you know, doing like a set timeout and you were calling this method, you know, faster than the uh, monitor can even paint. And that's where uh, RAF actually comes for, from, uh, for those uh, that don't know, request animation frame, um, which is basically, hey, there's no sense us using CPU cycles and trying to paint something when the monitor can't even do it. Um, and so I think it's really good to kind of understand how the engine is working. Uh, so that you're you're writing your most performant code, and that's the case with CSS JavaScript. It really it really doesn't matter because at the end of the day, a lot of times the the engine is better at understanding the hardware that we're on, and we do a lot of work to make sure that hey, if you're on a Hololens, for example, where you know we only are given so much RAM or GPU capabilities, we need to make sure that we utilize that correctly. So you're not going to be able to test every single uh, place. So if there's a good API for you to be able to hook into. Uh, and allow the browser to then say, okay, well, we know how to optimize this away where we're running. Uh, it's best to give that control back to the browser if possible. Okay, so another point to this too, and hopefully this is something that you'd be able to speak to. Part of the reason that I decided to dig into this topic was because I was kind of fascinated by, uh, I came from you know, feeling pretty good about JavaScript and went to this front-end role where I felt, you know, like my CSS skills were pretty poor. And it was interesting to me as I was working alongside um, what were, in my mind, some really great designers who really had a mastery of CSS. There's tons of times as a front-end developer where you're asked to implement something and you could implement it in JavaScript or you could implement it in CSS. And so as somebody who works on the rendering engine, can you kind of talk about when people might reach for JavaScript when CSS is actually a better option? Yeah, uh, I, it, that is such a common problem, unfortunately. Um, solely it, due like, to, yeah. <laughs> like I know for me, like I reached for JavaScript when I, when I started this journey, like I reached for JavaScript probably 99% of the time. Mm -hmm. And slowly realized that a lot of times CSS was going to be uh, easier, less code, and more performant. Yeah, there, there's a, uh, we, we actually, we, we meet with a lot of partners, uh, you know, uh, big, small, um, and, and usually they're just, it starts off as, hey, we found a performance problem. And usually we kind of have to untangle that and like work backwards. And we end up noticing, hey, why are you doing custom layout, you know, for this uh, nav menu, for example. And They'll be like, oh, well, you know, we, we had to because there was no other way around it. We had to do custom layout. Uh, and usually what we just come back with is the second that you start involving JavaScript, and it primarily some of it is the platform's fault, which we're trying to, you know, Houdini is a good example of, is you're going to be slower. The second that you start doing things in JavaScript custom, you're going to be slower than areas where we have heavily optimized. We know the most common patterns. We know specifically what Grid and Flex are trying to do so we can – to some extent, take shortcuts. Um, uh, and, and sometimes the inverse is true as well. There, it, It's really hard to just make a black and white statement of always just use CSS or always use JavaScript. Um, but CSS, probably nine times out of 10, if you're able to solve it with CSS, is going to be more performant. Uh, because we know, hey, you know, we know uh, I've done the optimizations to do like partial layout. Hey, we know where the hit testing occurred, whereas a lot of times you're going to be listening to events uh, in JavaScript. And so you're like, oh, well, they clicked this thing, so like, let's go do our logic and make sure something didn't change. We know exactly what changed in the tree, whether or not it should should or should not change, and then go run through the logic of updating the trees as necessary, recomputing styles if they are or are not needed. Um, it's just it's one of those things where we 
have you know roughly 20 years of optimizations built in, whereas a lot of times JavaScript developers are kind of rolling their own at that moment, and and so they don't necessarily get the benefits of that. Definitely. So this is actually hopefully um, something that I'm kind of wondering as we're talking. The stuff that I've kind of dug into, you know, helped kind of help me understand that certain styles that I'm applying are going to either trigger like a layout paint or composite. And um, like if you needed to hide something on the page, you know, you'd want to reach for opacity because that's only going to trigger composite, which is the last step. And um, that would be more performant. So can I back us up for a second yeah. and just – because you guys have mentioned these layers several times now. <laughs> but what the heck are they? What? Huh? Paint and and render and composite, all that? Can you give me the 15-second, 30-second overview of each of those steps? Uh, yeah. So um, I, I tried to go through it quickly, but just I guess to, to dive into it a little bit uh, quicker. Basically, there's the DOM, and that's where – you know, the, the DOM will go through and they'll take all that uh, HTML, they'll parse it out and they'll build up the document object model, which a lot of JavaScript developers are really uh, well aware of, uh, and basically make it so that all the elements have everything hanging off of them that you're expecting them to be there. So I, I feed the browser HTML. That's a text file. The browser mm-hmm. turns the text file, the HTML, into the DOM. has a mm-hmm. weird name, but it's the, sa- it's the same thing. Okay, yeah. got that. Continue. So and and right now I'm solely referring to the uh, rendering engine. I'm not jumping into, for example, in Edge we have Chakra and Chrome the FEA. I'm not jumping into, for example, them opening up and jitting and doing all their wonderful JavaScript stuff. Um, but then after the after the DOM is set up, uh, basically uh, we then go on and start. Hey, now that all the elements are there, we can start hanging styles off of these elements. Uh, and we'll go through, we'll parse all the CSS out, we'll uh, order them according to, you know, specificity as well as the uh, uh, the origins that they're from. Uh, and then finally... What do, do you mean by and, origins? Um, so th- this is actually one that's uh, not commonly known by web developers, but uh, there can be, for example, uh, user style sheets, um, there's author style sheets, uh, and then there's UA style sheets. So the most common one web developers are used to is, hey, I need to reset the browser styles. And that's because we have uh, our own styles baked in to have like an input element look a certain way. Um, and so the, the web developer then writes a style and those in and of themselves are ranked accordingly. And then once you're into the web developer styles, for example, then specificity comes into account. Uh, and a good example of where this uh, is affected, if you uh, happen to be on a Windows machine, you can also see it probably in uh, on Mac as well. If you turn on accessibility capabilities that change like the colors or something of that nature, um, in Edge at least, what we do is we actually use CSS to do that. And we use this logic of origins where we we end up taking, hey, the origin for the user has said high contrast needs to be turned on. And so their origin of being a user wins no matter what the web developer set those things to. Because at the end of the day, the user is king. And that's where the origins come in. Um, so, so you have UA, web developer, and then user. So that I don't want to sidetrack us too much, but you've, sure. you've piqued my interest. Yeah. <laughs> so if the user has high contrast on or something like that, and the mm-hmm. web page is supposed to be, you know, say black on white, is the high contrast going to override and make that white on black? It, it solely depends on what the user selected because we have multiple themes and they can even create their own. Uh, it's solely what they end up selecting. So, yeah, and, and I actually have a complete uh, uh, blog post on this because we also have um, CSS properties, uh, MS uh, uh, high contrast, where you then can, can kind of control this. Uh, but I have a blog post on it solely because of the fact if somebody is using that, it's kind of the design has disappeared the design it has nothing to do with your design at that point it's all about the user experience um so if you're testing out your site in high contrast on windows somebody is using that just solely so they can consume their content better um and so the we also offer you uh uh color keywords so if you want to be dynamic and say okay whatever they selected for the foreground color use that here i don't really care what that is but i want to like make sure that my style looks consistent and you can then do that i have examples on that blog post as well oh that's interesting yeah please uh, link to that cuz i i think i think a lot yeah. of the listeners would would like to hear about that yeah that's a good example of one we've tried to get standardized but it's really hard cuz it's os specific um and and we're we're kind of hopeful that uh apple proposed uh, i think uh, roughly 
a year ago uh, because of their new iPhone 10 with that notch. They wanted environment custom properties. Uh, and so we're, we're hopeful that we can get some of those things back in there uh, so that there's a standard way rather than, you know, using the EMS properties. Um, but we just cool. got to get around to standardizing it. So Okay, so we've got HTML goes into DOM. CSS yep. comes from three different sources, the user agent, the browser default, mm-hmm. then the author of the site, and then mm-hmm. the the accessibility agent or accessibility um, profile. Uh, yeah, the, the, it, like you had it right. Like let's leave off the accessibility agent because that's actually like uh, that sounds kind of like a, a term for there's um, accessibility tools uh, that actually are referred to that. So, oh, okay. Like, so that's different, that, that, different that's, thing. But a user yeah. style sheet, a common use case of that would yes. be an accessibility tool would turn that on. Yes. Okay. Exactly. So those three get parsed, and then mm-hmm. they get attached to the DOM. Now we're at the point where what do we do next? We we cascade them all, and we figure out which rules win uh, via specificity as well as origins. And then once we're done with that, we take those styles and we hang those off those DOM elements. And so now, hey, uh, that DOM element now has style with it. And what and is so we have? What is this called? Is this still a parsing phase, or is this? Uh, no, that's the cascade. This is the cascade phase. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. this now when you are, are when you're saying like hanging them off? Is this now the render tree? Uh, not at that point. No. Okay. Um, that's actually going to be the next step. Okay. Um, and and so yeah, we've now we we hang those like uh, you know if you're in JavaScript you can do element.style. Basically, that's what we've just accomplished. That information is now hanging in there. We've created the CSSOM. Um, that stuff is now available to us, but we don't have boxes. We don't have sizes. There's nothing to paint yet. That's kind of where we're at. Perfect. And oh, so, okay. yeah, once you have that, then it's time to go do layout. Um, and and basically what ends up happening at uh, Cascade time, you end up trying to compute everything down to um, auto, a percent, or an actual number, um, or its keyword. If it, like, for example, display grid, um, obviously that doesn't need to be computed. But you the, the computation, you try to get to percents auto um, or an actual value, a pixel value. Um, and so when you go into layout at that time, you start just walking down uh, the elements and you start producing boxes for them based on their styles. Um, and this gets kind of complex. And that's where like uh, going back to my talk where I actually walk you through this with visual examples is kind of helpful because uh, you can see, OK, yeah, there's the styles hanging off the DOM element. And OK, we're going to create a great formatting context. And then it goes down to its child boxes and starts constructing, resolving all the math and geometry that it's allowed um, and then in your case, uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and finish this thought here. So yeah, we, we go through, we size, we position, we place all the boxes in certain areas and that is the render tree of what you're referring to. And we then pass that on to painting where they go and they actually paint just a bitmap. Like if you were to open canvas and paint a bitmap, um, of that. Now it gets more complex. Like you got into, uh, Amy in your talk where, we end up having different layers and some of them may end up being their own, just own bitmaps because we want to optimize that away so the compositor can do work. Uh, but if we keep it simple, hey, there's one bitmap and then the render part of the pipeline passes that off to compositing, which then truly uh, smashes it all together and puts it uh, on the screen for the user. So during the paint phase, I could consider this in my mind like one of those like movie style blowouts where there's 30 pages laid on top of each other. And each one represents an element. And then in the composite mm-hmm. phase, they all squish together and get the opacity or they don't. When you start a new project, typically you need things like a domain name, hosting, things like that. When I choose hosting, I pick mine for the options it gives. I like to know what I'm getting and set things up just how I like them. This is why for your projects, you should check out Linode. Linode servers feature native SSD storage, a 40 gigabyte network, and Intel E5 processors. That's all the power you need to run VMs under full control or Docker containers, who doesn't love that, encrypted disks, and VPNs. Plus, they have 10 data centers across the world and add-ons like backups, node balancer, and long view to help you control your server costs. They also offer block storage for your static files, and you can get started with a $20 credit if you use the code JavaScriptJabber2018. That credit is good for four months on their one gigabyte server. That's a lot of time to try them out and see if they're the right fit for you. That code again is JavaScript Jabber 2018. Also, if you're interested in working for Linode, they're hiring. Head to linode.com slash careers to see their available positions. Yeah, the way I've always thought about it, if you've ever used any program that is a paint program, 
Uh, for example, Photoshop, and you create numerous different layers. Uh, technically, you're painting everything there, but the paint phase is where you kind of like right-click and you rasterize all the layers together, and now they're smashed. And so whatever is topmost is visible. Um, and then compositing then just puts that on its own layer and renders that to the user. Um, where things get interesting is, uh, for example, uh, Amy was alluding to, uh, some of the optimizations you can do in CSS, for example, is we can then see certain properties and say, uh, for example, if you set a uh, will change on something, uh, we can then say, okay, well, we're going to take this this area and we're not going to paint it along with this other one because we're going to paint its own bitmap. And now we're going to produce, we're going to call into the composition engine and we're going to say, hey, actually create two layers. Here's the bitmap for this one. Here's the bitmap for this one. And so then the composition engine isn't having, we're not having to go through paint over and over and over again, for example, for an animation. And that's a good example of where if you are in JavaScript and you're sitting there on RAF and you're trying to do animations via JavaScript, <laughs> that has to yeah. sit on the UI thread. And you're trying to move this box via, again, uh, DOM APIs. And you're like, okay, well, let me see where it's at. Let me set it. Let's keep moving. We'll keep this for loop going. And it's going to be almost impossible to get 60 frames per second out of that. Yeah. So to kind of like take a step back and review for a second for listeners. So, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that, uh, in order to run, like th these are all contingent upon each other. So layout, paint and composite. So if you want to speed things up, you know, you would want to try to only trigger composite. Your next best bet is to trigger a paint and composite. And then worst case would be if you have to run layout, because then you have to do layout, paint and composite. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Like, so uh, we parallelize uh, every every browser does like crazy. We have numerous threads for numerous different things. Um, but yeah, if, at, at its simplest, even even though they may be on separate threads, they have to come back and start talking to each other and sync sync up. So then that's usually called the main thread um, or the UI thread, depending on who you talk to. Uh, and they all do have to follow each other. Uh, but that's, again, where you just you had a great example of where you're able to bypass. We have optimizations um, built in. Uh, for, for example, one of the ones I use in my talk is, hey, one of the things that can invalidate this pipeline and cause it to flush um, is user input. So if you take a very simple CSS aspect of colon hover, uh, what what you end up, if we remember the pipeline that we just went through, at the end of the day, we literally only have a picture. It's not actually interactive. It's just a bitmap. It's like a picture if you were to take off the wall. That's all it is. And so now we have to give the illusion of when you moused over this thing, stuff happens. Okay, so how do you do that? And And we end up having to go back the hit testing algorithm has to occur because we need to know where the cursor is and we need to figure out what elements, uh, it's not actually elements, but which boxes under the render tree those are. And then we have to say, okay, are there any styles associated with this that may change? And sure enough, there are, and we would, let's not get complicated. I was going to say if there's event listeners, all that <laughs> stuff, but okay. A anyways, but like, um, we then say, okay, there's styles that have to change. We go down to style and we recompute those. And let's say they're only changing the background color. Well, we go, hey, we know for a fact we don't have to do layout. That's a paint-only change. So while, yes, they're dependent on it, we go, hey, we know we only have to paint, so we're going to bypass layout completely, and we're going to go paint and then hand that back to the compositor to render to the user so that we go as fast as possible. And that's not to say you couldn't accomplish that in JavaScript. It's just, again, you're leveraging what's already there rather than rewriting it yourself. So when I hover over a button and it goes down and to the right by one pixel to, to let me know, well, maybe that's not what I'm hovering, maybe that's why I'm clicking, but you know, it goes down and to the right by one pixel to let me know this is actually being depressed. That goes back into the layout phase because it's changing position? It depends on how you're doing it because you could achieve that same effect just via changing like painting because you could be like, hey, the border is actually now two pixels on the top and the left and the bottom is two pixels top to the left and the border is always there at that size. And so you're giving the impression that it's moving down to the right, but it's still only a paint effect. Makes huh. sense? Yeah. And and so with or the a gradient, a gradient is a good example of hacking that. And but what you just described is exactly why the paint TBI exists. Because so many people are like, hey, when I click on it, I want it to do this crazy like bubble thing and I want it to be where the cursor is and all these things that are like very hard to go standardize and then implement and all these things for a lot of times very specific needs of the web developer. And that's precisely what it gives you. It gives you a canvas context and it basically says, hey, when this thing happens, 
go run that canvas JavaScript stuff I did and put that in a, in a bitmap and render that. And so your thing would be very simple to do in a canvas context and guarantees no layout is occurring. I, I noticed recently, I don't know how recently, maybe this is years ago, but to me it's recently, there's now a hidden property on elements in the DOM that seems to accomplish the same thing as uh, block or display block versus dis- display none, where like if hidden is there, it it seems like it's the same as display none. Do you know why that is? Is that like a performance thing or a convenience thing? Or do you know anything to about be that? Completely, to be completely honest with you, uh, the only hidden I've ever used on an element is uh, the one on, on inputs to pass uh, information to the server side. So I actually don't have an answer for you on that. Well, just um, open up your F11. <laughs> what, what's it called? F10, F11? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's F12. F12. It's F12. F12, yeah. sorry. Yeah, you just open up your F12 and right-click on mm-hmm. an element, type hidden. It just disappears. It's pretty cool. Sure, yeah. No, that is, that is, that's, yeah, I don't, I don't have a clue when that, again, that's a good example of where it's a completely different team. <laughs> and so they probably went in there into the engine and added some styles. And at that point, we actually don't care in our part of the team. It's like, did we not paint it and everything? Sure, cool. <laughs> so we did our job. Um, so, uh, I, wait, wait, did you have a question about that? Well, it, yeah, the thing I'm wondering is like the difference between, let's say I remove an element is one way of doing display none. Like I actually say you're no longer in the DOM, which I'm pretty sure yeah. would cause a, a the whole process would have to go through again in the naive implementation. Sure. But if we're saying the element's still there but we're not going to display it, mm-hmm. then maybe layout doesn't change. And I was I was wondering if like the thought occurred to me maybe this whole thing with hidden is so that it like it's a signal that this only occurs in the last step. Don't do any of this other stuff because like if I you know as a developer you have different ways to choose to make the same exact experience come about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm guessing that you know like you've been saying depending on what you do in JavaScript versus adding or removing a class versus adjusting a style. Um, you're going to get a different effect on how it, it changes the render process and the layout process. And I call that whole thing render perhaps mistakenly, but that process. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, no, no, you're correct. It's actually in like spec terminology, we refer to it as the rendering pipeline. Like you're right. Um, and, and yeah, looking at it, I would expect that's doing the same thing as display none. And I, to be completely honest with you, probably under the hood, that's exactly what's happening. We're just setting in line styles on that development. Um, because we that we do that all over the place. It's it's one of those. Uh, that's actually a good example of where web developers like we we make like the engines are really complex, uh, but a lot of the stuff does works exactly the way you would expect. So we probably just set on that element, hey, you're displaying on, so that we don't have to do any other work down the down the rest of the pipeline. Um, but yeah, like to to your point, there's a lot of ways of getting content out of the. Uh, to the visual user. But one thing like I really want to stress is uh, while uh, to Amy's point, opacity would be uh, faster, it's always important to take into account the accessibility implications. Um, and and unfortunately, I can't speak for like all engines uh, on this because uh, we have UIA, um, a lot of people have IA2, it's a different uh, accessibility uh, things that they map to and different stages in that implementation. Um, but that's always something to take into consideration because uh, if it's if to the end user it's gone, then you obviously want to make sure that it's also gone to the uh, yeah. accessible user. Good point. Interesting. So I want to talk about, as we're talking about layout paint and composite, let's drill mm-hmm. down like a little bit further into uh, layout. Can you talk about, for people who are not aware, um, how stacking contexts work in the layout process? Yeah, so stacking context, um, just just so that we're on the same page, technically occur at the painting stage, um, and and it's on the same tree. And and so uh, uh, what what ends up happening is stacking context just change the order in which we paint. Um, and so if you've uh, done any computer science, you're kind of used to traversing a tree. Uh, and what that ends up doing is you go from the top of the tree down to the bottom of the tree, following regular painting order. Uh, in by default, 
Uh, and so basically you start at the parent, walk down, keep painting. Uh, and basically that ensures like the back, the content is over top of the background, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and what the stacking contexts allow you to do is, hey, if I, for example, set Z index two, uh, where, and this other uh, box is Z index one, uh, maybe the one that was um, now set to two should have been painted later. It creates a new stacking context and, and the paint algorithm will now go to that one after the Z index one. And so that allows that Z index two to now actually be painted on top. And this is actually a good example. When I first got here, I, I met with uh, some of the people that were on the compositing team and was like, no, but those are because they would keep referring to layers. And I was speaking regarding Z index because as a mm -hmm. web developer, it gives you this feeling of having control of layers. Uh, when in actual, it's not. You're solely painting the same pixels. You're just painting over the pixels. Um, and, it's good and to so, visualize like, it that way. Exactly. And, and, and so it, it would be as though like if you just took a canvas context and you had two areas that wanted to consume the same pixel, whichever one painted later is going to have that pixel. Um, and that's precisely what occurs in the engine. Uh, and so when people are uh, browser engines are referring to layers, they're usually referring to compositing layers. Um, so, yeah. And I, I in, in my talk as well, I have an example of that where the stacking context show two examples where how stacking context affects paint order and thus gives you that capability of feeling like you have control over content over top of another content when in actuality you're just filling in pixels in a different order. Interesting, man. My brain is like going to something that <laughs> that's super deep that I won't go into here. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, okay. I I have one more question that may not be in your wheelhouse, but I've noticed. I don't know if it was like on Twitter or something, but it just it sounds like there's more people interested in doing styles in JavaScript. Um, and I've I've heard like from people. I think they're more like novices in the React community where they're just like, because it's easy and they don't have to open up two files. They can just have one. Like they have all of their HTML and all of their uh, JSX and all of their style all in one single page. Um, is, is, is this, is this okay? Or is this bad to try to do styles that way? I, I actually really appreciate you bringing that up. That was one of the one things I definitely wanted to kind of talk about. And and I, it kind of goes to my earlier thing. And this is why web development is like good and bad at the same time. It's it's really hard because I, I never want to make a blanket statement because uh, I've worked with a lot of partners where, you know, being the CSS team, we go in and we go, you know, why on earth are you not doing, you know, this and, you know, like using the cascade and you're trying to bypass it and all those um, other things. And we would have been much more performant had you not been touching those DOM elements or whatever. Um, but I, but it's, it's always important to go back and say, why are they using it? And I, I think that's one thing that, uh, you know, I've at least tried to, you know, really, uh, uh, understand is, and it almost always comes back to manageability. I, I don't, I think some people reach for it cause it's what they know and they're comfortable with JavaScript. Uh, but I think that there is an important problem that it is solving and it's a completely valid problem. Um, of, hey, I want to ensure and test and make sure that this thing is working the way it is. And right now, JavaScript tooling is remarkable at that. And it gives you a great capability of saying, hey, these styles will always be here. We won't regress anything. We're not inflating our CSS styles, you know, by like 7 trillion and making the cascade do all kinds of work that it doesn't need to. Um, it, it's actually a, a great example of, in a lot of ways, you'll be really performant that way. Um, one thing that I'm super excited about, and I can't wait to see it kind of take off, um, and this is kind of approaching the same problem, but from a different lens by somebody who really, really knows uh, CSS really well, uh, Chris Epstein from LinkedIn Engineering. Uh, that I don't know if you all have seen it, but CSS Blocks. Um, and, and I think the thing that I'm really excited about it is it, it looked at the problem space. And this is why CSS is so hard to debug, and CSS is so hard to manage, is because of the fact it's right in the middle. Like it depends on DOM and then it produces some stuff after the fact. And it's really hard to keep track of that because of the fact that you have to have the DOM or else the CSS by itself means nothing. You have to have them together in order to do, you know, selector matching and to actually then render something. Uh, and CSS blocks is great 
it, it's a it's a it's a large buy-in similar to you know switching to React or switching to Vue or any of those other J- JavaScript frameworks, because you end up having to set up your HTML code following CSS block like template language. But the beauty of it is once you once you decide to dive in and take that. You can then say, okay, I want you to tell me whether or not I have CSS that is being unused. But you can write it just in, you know, using SAS or regular CSS, any of that stuff. You can do it your own regular way, but because of the fact you've bought into that, it then is able to tie the DOM to the CSS and be able to give you that answer. And that's primarily what's missing, is that because it depends on the DOM and the selectors have to look at the DOM, you can't just do static analysis of just CSS and say, Hey, tell me what's unused because JavaScript can affect it. The JavaScript can come in and add, you know, a new element. And now the selectors technically do match that. You know what I mean? You can't, it's, it's a really, because it's right in the middle, it's a really hard thing to debug. And that's to me, one of the main problems that React and Vue and all these, uh, component based, uh, JavaScript based, uh, because of the fact that they don't understand and can't manage specificity within their team. And yeah, by adopting one of those, yeah. yeah, you end up being able to, uh, control that really well. Uh, and so the one of the negatives, though, because I've, I've had a lot of meetings with folks because they end up going, well, now that we've got control of the specificity, we've now lost the capability of pseudo-selectors and, you know, colon hover. And I, so now we're doing more work. Yeah, I do fear, like, sometimes that is used as an escape hatch instead of understanding how specificity, bleh, specificity actually works. Yeah, and and and, and it, Again, it's one of those things that, to some extent, uh, you can come back and say, hey, solve that. And uh, we actually do. Uh, Leah Brew actually approached, and it's it's one that I've kind of toyed with. Uh, she actually had a much better proposal, uh, though. But it's basically a function that ends up giving you the capability of nullifying everything within that CSS selector to have zero. Um, oh, wow. And so so it's, it's one of those things you can then use it to select, but you're not creating a more specific element. Um, and so so it's it's it's... It's it's a little bit more verbose, but in it's it's kind of in its infancy. Um, but it it again is trying to solve that problem. Like if you're a developer that is putting an entire build process and all these other things in place using React and Vue solely to nullify specificity, then this may be a good out where you can now use this and you can make it so that other people can consume your component using raw CSS without necessarily um, you know having collisions and other people needing to learn your specificity or following BIM or some other, you know, naming schema. Um, so yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of legitimate reasons why people reach for those. And I don't ever want to just like flat out shame. It's, it, it's, it's one of those things where it'll depend on each team. But I think if you do what Amy did and you go and arm yourself with the knowledge of at least what the rendering engine is doing, you don't have to, 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 dig in real deep or say, Hey, I want to go join the CSS working group or anything of that nature. (laughs) But if you start understanding what it's doing, you can then make a very informed decision of whether or not to, uh, do custom layout or anything of that nature. And one, I actually had a, uh, talk with a team, uh, at Microsoft and we were investigating things and there was this performance problem that they were having. And I ended up just flat out saying, is there a chance we can just get the design team in here? Cause I really want to know if what you all are fighting against is worth the design. And sure enough, the design team was more than happy to say, oh, yeah, we don't want it to be, you know, eat 400 milliseconds solely to achieve this one little look um, if you can't make it work across because they, they basically had to support, you know, some lower um, IE versions and stuff like that. And so it was like, yeah, we can come up with a different one that will work across browser. And I think a lot of times web developers don't do that. They don't say, hey, yes, I can achieve this in JavaScript. And it's eaten up 400 milliseconds of my time, but was making it look exactly like the designer wanted worth that 400 milliseconds. Very mature approach to it. So I've got one last question for you, which is when does it even matter? Like whether I'm taking so many milliseconds or whatever. I mean, is it, is it cause I care about how much battery the person's using? Do I actually need 60 frames a second? Like when do these, these things matter other than like, I think everybody should know it cause it's way cool to know, but when does it matter? Oh goodness. That's a really broad question. Um, like I, I, I would say it almost always matters, uh, solely for the reason that, um, at some point, you're going to end up in the scenario of where you're working on a team and it's not your own personal website where you actually don't care about the demographics. 
and the clients. Um, the one thing that we always try to push uh, with folks is it, with Microsoft Edge, we, we ship on so many different devices. We ship on IOTs that you know have like very, very low uh, memory capability. We ship on HoloLens. We ship on Xbox. Uh, we, we ship on uh, tablets and you know really hardcore PCs as well. Um, and so it's one of those things that you, I, a, it actually really kind of drives me crazy when web developers sit on their high-end uh, laptops, Mac, it really doesn't matter what device, and act as though that's everybody's bar. Um, in most cases, especially with the, the uh, uh, proliferation of mobile, it's really low. And so I almost would love for the default to be, hey, is that like question every single UI thing? The second that you say, oh, well, the only way to solve this is reaching into JavaScript, that better be serving a very, very, very important purpose because you will be impacting your user's experience because you're going to have to bypass optimizations. Um, and so basically have that business discussion. Is this going to, you know, earn us, you know, an extra, you know, percentage improvement on profits? If it isn't, then it's probably not worth the performance hit. Um, and, and to me, that's why it's very important to know as much of this as you can, uh, Solely, again, just so you can make an informed decision because you can't make that informed decision of whether it's worth it or not um, solely on the business because you can't say, oh, well, I know that this calling, you know, get bounding client recs every single RAF and forcing layout to know where this is and doing layout thrashing, you know, to insert and re reanalyze stuff solely to achieve your experience is worth it. Um, so I, I, th I think it's, it's really worth knowing how the rendering engine works. And there's more and more browser developers uh, and engineers getting bugs back, and it's solely due to the fact of um, abuse of the engine. And then on top of that, the platform not providing the right hooks, and thus, unfortunately, for the web developer to solve the problem, they had to abuse the engine. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like getting your oil changed, I think. All right. You know, not everybody needs to be a master mechanic, but... Well, um, one one last comment. I've noticed that you keep on saying RAF over and over again. That's request oh. animation frame. Is that what that stands for? Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, it's no, the it's short okay. term. Yeah, I apologize. No, I'm trying to catch those things to, to help out with listeners, and I actually didn't know what that one was, but I kept hearing it. Yeah. And then I realized what it was, and I was like, oh. Anyway, um, well, I think that's time. And uh, I'm really glad that you are such an experienced and knowledgeable person. And you and Amy both have done so much research into this. It's been a great show. Um, yeah, awesome. Before we close up, we do picks. And hopefully you were informed of that. If not, we'll have Amy go first and she'll show you how it's done. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter DevChat in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Okay, so I am actually going to pick Greg's talk because I thought it was an excellent talk. I'm going even deeper into the stuff than I had, and I learned a lot from it. So that's going to be my first pick. And then my second one, speaking of conference talks, um, this looks like an older blog post that I stumbled upon this week by Sarah May on, uh, it's just called What Your Conference Proposal is Missing. And that will be my second pick for today. And I will cut it short there because the internet here is really bad. Alrighty. And uh, Greg, would you like to share some picks? Yeah, I, 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 uh, I definitely would like to second uh, uh, Amy's uh, Shop Talk podcast because uh, I think it's a great uh, example of 
you know, a JavaScript developer coming and learning CSS and how to debug it. I think I think it's a great thing for everybody if you're primarily a JavaScript developer to to learn how to do and at least you know start getting more comfortable uh, debugging uh, uh, CSS. Uh, my my second one, uh, and it's just kind of remarkable. He's he's got a blog post on it uh, and also a talk. Uh, but Jake Archibald, uh, he's from Google, uh, and he has a uh, tasks uh, talk that he gave. Um, I highly recommend all you have to do is uh, search for uh, Jake Archibald tasks, microtasking cues. And it does a really good job of outlining a lot of the JavaScript aspect of the rendering uh, engine and how it handles the tasks that you kind of set up without even realizing you're kind of setting them up, whether they be promises or, you know, intersection observers, what have you. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's a really great one to, to, to look at and understand because it just, again, helps inform how the rendering engine is handling your code. Okay. Um, my first pick, I'm going to pick, um, well, kind of two, two things, but I'm going to talk about it in the same go. So the Microsoft Surface has the most beautiful display. It's absolutely something that you should not be developing on for accessibility and color correctness. And well, yes, for color correctness, but not for like what you were saying earlier, everybody needs to have a $200 Dell laptop so they can test their stuff and see what the rest of the world experiences. And the Microsoft Surface is absolutely not that. Um, and there was my wife was showing me something on it, and she was in Word, and there was just something that was happening that was beautiful. And I was like, what is going on? I, I, I didn't know what it was yet. And then I was like, the cursor, the way the cursor moves. So even on Macs, the way the cursor moves is it jumps from before the letter that you're on to after the letter that you're on. So whether you're in the URL bar or whatever, and I don't know if this is throughout Windows or if it's just in Word, but when you hit the arrow key over, the cursor actually gradually slides over. And if you hit um, you know, a key and a new letter appears, the cursor will, will just slide with the uh, the thing that's pasted or that's that's appearing, and I just thought that that was kind of incredible. Um, I have not seen such finesse and and I don't know what the like attention to detail in in the design of the way that a cursor moves ever, and it it just blew my mind and it made me wish that I had that, and I wish that I had that. So that's going to be uh, my my two picks are the the Microsoft Surface beautiful display, and then the way that Word or whatever it is is moving the cursor, just amazing. Thank you, appreciate you being on the show. You were excellent, um, Amy. You were excellent. AJ, <laughs> you were all right. <laughs> excellent as well. Thank you for hosting. Yes, thank you. Thank you both so much. It was a pleasure. Awesome. Adios. Adios. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.